You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Beautiful spring evening to um, our this latest uh, edition of our Writers Live programs. On the table over here are some program flyers um, um, publicizing some of our upcoming programs. And in fact, our calendar for May and June is over there as well. So we hope that you will pick those up, some of those up on your way out. Um, this evening, uh, I'm pleased to welcome to the podium and to the Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, Tariq Ture, who is a, a local poet and um, activist and Muslim, and he is going to uh, introduce our speaker for this evening. Good evening. Can you all hear me? So just a, a little housekeeping. Um, we have like a very intimate group, so I'm not sure whether or not um, everybody knows each other, but let's just rearrange the seats a little bit. Let's like come to this front part. Yeah. I don't bite, my my, uh, my infant might bite, but I don't. Yeah, let's just come up a little bit. Yeah, you can come to the front row, yeah. Sit in the, uh, hey, what they tell you um, in high school, sit in the tea? And so you sit in the tea, the kids that sit in the tea get like better grades or something like that. So at, at least if I read my poems and they're trash, at least I get to like yell pretty good at me, right? I was close enough for them to yell at me. Um, number one, I just uh, I want to thank uh, everyone on staff here for bringing me up. Definitely for people for even thinking about me. Um, my story coming to writing is, is kind of odd. I've been a writer all of my life uh, and part athlete. And um, I, didn't, I didn't meet some, I uh, didn't meet a black person who designated themselves as a writer. Like, you know, you ask somebody, what do you do? And I'm a writer until I was maybe about 23 years old. So I didn't even know that was like a, a thing. Um, so I'm happy just to be able to be in these spaces like this. Um, Tonight, I'm going to read three poems, very brief poems. I'll say end poem at the end so you won't feel confused. Um, and then I'll introduce our illustrious guest. That sound good? Thank you so much. My ghetto's name is Sandra. Sandra has hips that sit on her neck, a forehead so big and so round and so smooth that she tames it along with her big hair on Fridays for 12 hours at a time. She irons on cherry lipstick on her face in the wee hours of the morning and walks presidentially through the pushes, pill poppers, parolees, then past the pastors, past the pastor's wives, and on to the boulevard. On Mondays, Sandra stops traffic, the laws of gravity, hearts, eyes, and tears between 12 and 3 p.m. Day laborers pray for her arrival as one with the Son of God. Her voice is a well-balanced sonnet between honey and hell, juice and Jericho. When Sandra speaks, if she speaks, Murderers even stand at attention, tightening their bottom lips into a corkscrew. Her kisses are colder than winter's first snow. When Sandra loves, if she loves, it's always way too hard, too cold, too fast, too sudden. She only knows a fragile intimacy that breaks us along with her. It is this breaking that pushes us to wave highs and goodbyes, good mornings and good nights, and nothing more. 
never nothing more. Impossible. forgotten nevers. Like we don't know how the asphalt on this road gives for heavy feet. Like peach cobbler ain't always been umbrella for depression's rain. Like light from burning crosses didn't reflect off window panes. Like pop pop ain't lay rifle cross lap on southern porches. Like we ain't doused holy water on torches. Like Stokely ain't lay blueprint. Like a cider don't breathe through these letters. Like black mamas don't braid bullets into cornrows. Like we ain't beat the maafa. Like we can't lay roses on Jim Crow's tomb. Like Sankara never told us the oppressor was on our dinner plate. Like Nzinga never held country, countryside, and countrymen down. Like Mega ain't sacrificed everything for the only thing. Like liberation is any other place than under our sternums. Like we ain't been surviving like triumph, I mean Trump, something new for us. Like we ain't all been needing freedom. Like the time ain't now. Like this road been crystal. Like you ain't supposed to keep climbing them stairs. And Paul. Um, I wrote this. Uh, after the, the young boy, uh, they pulled from the rubble in Aleppo. Um, I just happened to see that dramatic picture. Um, didn't want to see it, but sometimes, you know, we see things that shape us. Uh, it's just called Flowers in Aleppo. When the children return with atom bombs for eyes, bellies filled to the brim with indifference, cursing a womb they fell from, Burning the eulogies of their ancestors, it is the soil that will pay the price. When the children return, having learned to swim in an acid ocean, believing the stars are scattered omens, knowing the rattle of mortifier better than the voices of their cousins, will we curse the religion that they adopt? When the children return, in acquiescence with the sky closing, well adapted to darkness's callous palms, and have no measure for when day breaks, clothed in skin stitched from their father's backs. It is the crops that will mourn their ghosts. When the children return with appetites for gunpowder and steel, when they no longer fear our voices because our breath smells of silence. If they conclude that the world sat and watched, it is their thunder we will have to endure. Flowers in Aleppo. I have the uh, distinguished honor um, of bringing to the stage Deepa Iyer, who um, is what James Baldwin would call a witness, a truthful witness in what she is doing um, in writing and organizing um, and activism and to know that she is documenting this journey so that you know our generations later on down the road can know what we had to come upon and go against. Um, very humbled to be able to, to do this today. Um, she's a senior fellow at the so Center for Social Inclusion. Um, she was an executive, executive director of the South Asian Americans Leading T Together and an activist in residence at the University of Maryland. Her book, We Too Sing America, uh, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future is something that we will look on 100 years from now and be able to say, as we say in Baltimore, Deepa did that. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's an amazing person, and uh, I'm just happy to be here to be able to introduce you. So thank you, and welcome to Baltimore. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on a Tuesday evening. I appreciate it. And thank you, Tariq, for the introduction. Can you all hear me okay from, I'll move this here a little bit. 
Um, so first of all, I just really wanted to thank you, Tariq, for coming. And if you all don't know Tariq's work, I really, really urge you to check it out. Um, his book, Seeds um, of Seeds of Today, is that right? Black Seeds. Yes, I wrote that down. Black Seeds is available on his website as well, www.tariqtere.com. So please do check it out. Um, he is a, a visionary, and the the minute I met him, I think six months ago, I was really moved by his work, and was I'm so glad that you could be here. Um, and thank you all as well. Thank you to the Pratt Library, um, to Judy and Tracy and others for putting this together. What I'm going to do today, since we have a very small group of folks, is to um, talk a little bit about some of the themes that are in my book and then hope to have sort of an interactive conversation with you all. The books are also available outside if you're interested in purchasing one. All the royalties from the book actually go directly back to supporting organizing in South Asian Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrant communities. So if that's an incentive, um, please do think about purchasing a book, and I'll be happy to sign it. Um, and I also wanted to just do a shout out because, you know, we, uh, Tariq and I were talking about this, like we bring our kids to a lot of these events. So Noor is here, my son Ahi's in the back with my friend and colleague Laura. So um, just wanting to thank the space for allowing children to be part of it as well. So um, I, for those of you who do like the tweeting thing, um, here's some Twitter handles. Feel free to use that if you, if you would like. Um, the hashtag is WeToSingAmerica. Um, so Tariq had um, talked a little bit about um, who I am and said extremely nice things about the book, which I appreciate. But I wanted to start by just orienting myself a little bit in terms of how I came to writing this book in the first place. Um, so my point of entry is as an immigrant. I moved to uh, my parents. This is the picture of them. Um, moved my brother and me to the wonderful state of Louisville, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, when I was 12 years old from Kerala, India. And um, growing up in Kentucky in the mid-1980s, as you can imagine, as an adolescent, I was 12 when we moved here, um, was a bit of a culture shock, to say the least. Um, I didn't really know where I fit in. Race in Kentucky at the time was really seen through a black or white lens and paradigm. And so being someone who was um, Indian, who was raised Hindu, I wasn't really clear exactly where I fit in. Um, but for me, those kinds of ideas about race and racism and immigration and identity really didn't get too solidified um, until actually the moments right after September 11, 2001. Um, at the time, I was working at a, uh, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division as a lawyer. Um, and I often talk about how, and this is in the book, that in the days after 9-11, the days after the, after the attacks, um, those of us who come from South Asian, Muslim, Arab, and Sikh communities really went through a process of double grieving, grieving for the ter terrible attacks that had happened on our soil um, and for the countless numbers of lives that had been lost, but also grieving for what we knew would come, which was the scapegoating of our communities um, who were all, all of a sudden immediately seen as terrorists, um, those who were blamed for what had happened. And this is a picture that was taken, uh, I would say, about five days after the attacks at the Japanese American Memorial in Washington, D.C., where we sent a message. Civil rights leaders around the country sent a message to the country to not repeat the same mistakes we had made during World War II with the internment of Japanese Americans. And sadly, this is a, 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 another gathering that we made just this past December, the same place to send the same message. We'll talk more about that um, as we move on. Um, I was very fortunate that in the years following 9-11, in the decade following 9-11, I was able to um, helm an organization that for the first time started to work on issues affecting South Asians in the United States and work on cross-movement solidarity as well. Um, so a lot of those experiences, the post-9-11 experiences, I would say, of myself as well as the communities I work with really form the backbone of this book. Um, and I wrote the book for a number of reasons, um, which I'll just quickly go over. I wrote it because um, at the time, as Tariq mentioned, I was teaching at the um, University of Maryland in the Asian American Studies program. And I found that a lot of my students had a very sanitized understanding of what post-9-11 America was. Um, they had some markers in their minds, you're with us or against us, right? They knew kind of broadly what Islamophobia, that it existed. Um, but they really didn't understand what the day-to-day -day experiences were. So the book, in a way, is a living history. It tells stories of people um, who come from these communities 
especially young people who are experiencing racism, Islamophobia, and xenophobia kind of all at once. And it's also a reminder, you know, I traveled with this book during the presidential season, and um, it was a reminder in many ways that what we're seeing now is the result of a 15-year cycle. It is more dangerous. It is certainly something that requires us to resist in ways that we have not before, but it is also a result of a cycle that we had started to see right after 9-11. And the book is also a call to action for the communities that it is about, um, for South Asian, Muslim, Arab, and Sikh immigrants to really center our racial identities and our racial solidarities. So what do we mean when we say we're people of color? What do we mean when we say Black Lives Matter? So it's a real call to action for our own communities. And lastly, it's about how do we organize and build power in a changing racial landscape um, at a time when in about 20, 30 years, we will be a country where the majority population is people of color. What does it mean to learn the lessons of the post 9-11 moment and to actually ensure that communities are able to be uh, reaching equitable, safe, and healthy communities where they live? So that's a little bit of what the book tries to do. Um, so what I want to do now is talk a little bit about post-9-11 America. And what I posit in the book, and then I'll read a little bit from the book, um, is that the 9-11, the post-9-11 phenomenon really wound itself up in three particular ways. First was around plain old racism. Um, a second was around Islamophobia. And a third was around anti-immigrant sentiment or xenophobia. Of course, we're seeing remnants of that now, uh, the, the uh, reverberations, I should say, of that. And the post-9-11 environment also came together in a couple of ways. The first way that I think most people recall it as is through one-on-one -on -one racism or one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one violence. Um, this is a picture of the brother of Balbir Singh Sodhi, who you might remember, a Sikh American who was murdered in Mesa, Arizona, just a few days after 9-11. Um, he was outside his gas station planting flowers for the victims when he was attacked and killed on the spot by someone who was seeking revenge for what had happened on 9-11. Many people think that the violence after 9-11 receded in the years that came right after, but that's not true. Um, it continues. So, it, and it continues and happens to several people who are not actually Muslim, but who are perceived to be Muslim. This is a picture of Sunando Sen, a Hindu man who in 2012 was pushed into the um, oncoming train in the New York City subways and was killed immediately by someone who claimed that they were taking revenge for what had happened right after 9-11. Or you might remember seeing the faces of these three young Palestinian American students who just in 2015 were killed um, by a neighbor. So this sort of violence continues, and it's unfortunately gotten worse and worse. Um, we saw just this past year, in 2016, the killings of an imam, a Bangladeshi imam, and his assistant in Queens. And we also see vandalism happening. Beyond the violence, we see vandalism happening to places of worship with signs like these, happening at mosques, happening at Hindu temples, and of course, we see the obstruction to even the building of mosques. So whether it's in Sterling Heights, Michigan, or Murfreesboro, Tennessee, there are countless numbers of mosques that have licenses that are able to be built but are facing vehement opposition in many different ways. Beyond the one-on-one -on -one violence and beyond the vandalism, we also see systems and institutions carrying out post-9-11 bias. Um, Airport profiling, flying while brown, is a phenomenon that is known to many people. This is a picture of an actor, Waris Alawalia, who's a Sikh American who has refused um, the ability to board a plane because of his beard and his turban. Or people who are wearing the hijab and are not able to uh, get workplace rights. Uh, this is CARE Maryland that is protesting um, or, or, or speaking out about the importance of saying that we cover and we work. Or you might remember this picture of Ahmed Mohammed. Um, this is an example of what is happening in the school system, where young people, um, Ahmed Mohammed, a black um, immigrant in the United States in Texas who brought in a homemade clock to school, which was immediately perceived to be a bomb, and was put into juvenile detention. 
So these are ways in which regular people and systems have been really instituting post 9-11 bias against people who are Muslim, Arab, Sikh, and South Asian, and Hindu over the past 15 years. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in isolation. And the second way in which the post 9-11 environment or post 9-11 bias has occurred is really through state violence. So since the beginning, in the 48 hours after 9-11 to now, we have seen different types of policies, primarily immigration policy and national security policy coming together to profile people who are either from a particular country or who practice Islam. We know now words like the Muslim ban, but the Muslim ban started actually right after 9-11. Um, so for example, people who were put into detention, we call these people, the picture here, the disappeared because we don't know what happened to the hundreds of Arab and South Asian men who were taken away right after 9-11. Or programs like special registration, um, which really is a precursor to the Muslim ban, which was a policy that was instituted in the Bush administration that identified men or required men 16 years and older from 25 Muslim-majority countries to, quote, report to immigration authorities. Thousands of men did that, and many ended up in deportation proceedings and were asked questions not about their immigration status, but actually things like, what mosque do you pray at? And so we know that this was another policy of profiling. A third policy that we have seen over and over is that of surveillance. So the New York Police Department, for example, has been engaging in a practice of actually sending in what they call mosque crawlers, people who are going into mosques, law enforcement, and spying, surveilling um, what imams are saying there. Um, we know that the NYPD has surveilled Muslim students associations at Rutgers University. We know that they have actually been spying on um, people who are playing cricket and soccer games in public parks in Brooklyn and Queens. So in a way, even the most mundane of activities, when they are practiced by someone who is Muslim, is all of a sudden subject for suspicion and scrutiny. The other way that we have seen this sort of, um, the third way that we have seen this sort of post 9-11 phenomena play out in addition to one-on-one -on -one bias and in terms of state violence is the narrative, the narrative that has been building over the last 15 years. We've sadly become accustomed to signs like this, right, all around the country. We've sadly become accustomed to even governors saying, we're not going to take refugees. We're seeing over and over again um, at the state level English-only laws being introduced as though that is needed, or um, anti-Sharia laws introduced as though that is needed in this country. So this is the type of rhetoric and the type of policy and the type of bias that has led many people in our communities to feel that it's not our country, that we don't actually belong. And that's the climate that I look at in the book. What is the impact of especially young people growing up in this sort of climate? and how these policies, as well as the rhetoric, come together to shape their experiences. So with that, I want to actually read um, a couple of passages from the book that exemplify the impact of this climate. And I'm going to read from the first chapter of the book, which is um, focused on a community in uh, Wisconsin, right outside of Milwaukee, called Oak Creek. Um, and, and then I'll talk a little bit more about what this community has endured. But this chapter is called, Not Our American Dream. It was early on a Sunday morning in August of 2012, and Paramjit Korsaini was going about her morning routine. Her sons, 20-year-old Kamal and 18-year-old Harpreet, wanted to sleep in a little bit longer. So Paramjit set out on her own to the local Gurdwara, the Sikh temple of Wisconsin. Paranjit was a familiar presence at the Gurdwara, which had become a second home to her family and to many of the Sikhs in Oak Creek, which is a small city located in the outskirts of Milwaukee. The Gurdwara was built in 2007 on 13 acres of land by Sikh immigrant families, and it sits just a few miles from the Milwaukee airport. On weekends, Sikh families gathered at the Gurdwara to pray and connect with one another. The dining hall was always filled with the sounds of people socializing and children laughing during langar, which is a free meal offered to anyone who came to the Gurdwara. Kamal and Harpreet usually hung out with their friends and played football, 
while their mother helped in the kitchen and the prayer hall. But August 5th, 2012, would not turn out to be a normal Sunday for Padamjit's family or for the Oak Creek community. Soon after his mother had left the house, news reached Kamal that people inside the Sikh temple of Wisconsin were in danger. Details were scarce and panic-stricken, Kamal rushed to the Gurdwara to find that law enforcement vehicles had blocked off the driveway. Authorities asked Kamal to wait across the street in the parking lot of a bowling alley where he joined others also anxiously searching for information. While waiting there, Kamal and others speculated about what might be happening inside the Gurdwara. They wondered, did a dispute between community members go awry? Then their close friend Kiranbeet received a call from her father. He was inside the Gurdwara. He whispered to her that he was hiding in the pantry of the kitchen because he had heard gunshots. He was one of around 25 people huddled, terrified, among bags of rice and fresh vegetables. Kiranbeet's father told her, don't come to the Gurdwara under any circumstances. As the day wore on, many of the people who had been inside were allowed to leave, and a fuller picture began to emerge about the rampage that had occurred inside the Gurdwara that Sunday morning. Not seeing his mother and becoming increasingly anxious about her safety, Kamal left the parking lot. He called his friends, and together they went from hospital to hospital, hoping that Paramjeet had been brought to one. It would be a full 11 hours before authorities finally notified Kamal that his mother had been one of six people fatally shot inside the Gurdwara. When I first found out, I passed out, Kamal told me. I woke up in an ambulance and immediately thought of my little brother. Telling him was the hardest thing that I have ever done. This was not the future that Paranjit had envisioned for her family when she and her two sons moved to America from India in 2004 to join her husband who owned a number of gas stations in Wisconsin. And it was not the life that Paramjit had planned to build when she mustered up the courage a few years later to begin working at a medical factory in a nearby town. She used to be a housewife for a few years after we moved here because she had a problem with English, Kamal remembered. But it's funny how she got the job because she had to do a phone interview. She was afraid they would call while we were in school and she wouldn't understand what they were saying. So one day, she got the call and I happened to be home. She put it on speaker and I kept translating the questions for her. With Kamal's assistance, Paramjit passed the interview handily and started her job as an inspector at a medical factory. Paramjit's determination to care for her family is a point of deep pride for her two sons. 45 days after his mother was killed, Harpreet spoke about her in testimony before the United States Senate. He said, my mother was a brilliant woman, a reasonable woman. Everyone knew she was smart, but she never had the chance to get a formal education. She couldn't. As a hardworking immigrant, she had to work long hours to feed her family, to get her sons educated, to help us achieve our American dreams. This was more important to her than anything else. But now she's gone because of a man who hated her, because she was not his color or his religion, she was an American, but this was not our American dream. So I'm going to pause there, and if you'll just join me for a moment to, um, to think about the community in Oak Creek, but the communities everywhere here in Baltimore and around the nation who are dealing with the impact of hate violence. Thank you. So the rest of that particular chapter traces the impact of hate violence, particularly on South Asian communities. And it makes the point that clearly hate violence did not start right after 9-11. It has actually been part of the South Asian American experience ever since we have been in this country. It looks back at examples like this that happened in Bellingham, Washington in the early 1900s, where a mob of white residents there piled Hindus and Sikhs who were migrant laborers into the basement of the city hall um, in order to basically get them to leave the city, even though their labor was actually wanted and needed. But their residents, their ability to build families, their ability to actually contribute to the communities in other ways was not. 
And this is just an example of the type of anti-immigrant sentiment that we have seen affecting South Asians and Sikhs and Arabs and Muslims um, for centuries, except that after 9-11, it got exceedingly worse. And the impact on our communities is still something that we are trying to manage and understand. Um, Tariq talked earlier when he was doing the introduction that I've been organizing and working in South Asian American communities for about 15 years. And what I found after 9-11 is that we are still scrambling. We are still a community in crisis, and we're still trying to understand the extent of the impact of what has happened. But the impact looks a little bit like this. Um, there's a lot of shame and self-editing in our communities, self-censoring. Should I wear my turban when I'm flying today? Um, should I change the name that I give my child? so that it's not recognizable? Should I not speak in my language to my mother when we're walking down the street? It also has a chilling effect on civic and political participation. And the psychological impact of being othered is multi-generational, as many, many communities of color know. We're also dealing not just with uh, the federal impact of these policies, but state impacts. State legislation, especially in places like Tennessee, um, Georgia, Texas is becoming even more anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim than ever before, and blatantly so. And lastly, fear and insecurity, which has been heightened by, unfortunately, the presidential campaign. And what we saw in the wake of the presidential campaign, as many of you know, um, has been, again, an uptick in hate violence. So notes like this have been sent to mosques um, around the country about what will happen to Muslims because of the new president, right? There's a new sheriff in town. We know from the Southern Poverty Law Center that hate incidents in just the one month after 9-11 have been reported by communities around the country, including Muslims, immigrants, um, queer, transgendered communities, in, uh, in reports that we have not seen before. But it's not just that these hate violence incidents are happening, right? There's again the, the, the integration of this language and rhetoric at the highest levels of government, something that we haven't seen before. The Center for New Community, a nonprofit organization, has been tracing the impact of nativism at the White House and looking at the numbers of people who have been hired who are actually advising the president very closely, who have ties to anti-Muslim or anti-immigrant organizations. And of course, the executive orders that this president continues to sign are ones that are deeply damaging to our communities. So whether it's the Muslim ban, which thankfully has been blocked time and again and cannot be implemented thanks to the courts, um, or whether it is the creation of the wall, or whether it is the rampant raids that we're seeing around the country, um, the time, as you all know, that we're living in is one of tremendous crisis to immigrants, communities of color, queer and transgender communities, and Muslims. Um, and the, the impact of this violence, the impact of the rhetoric, the impact of these policies continues. Not a week goes by, I feel, that we don't hear about the violence that is happening around the nation. So whether it is the murder of uh, Srinivas Kochabotli, the Indian American engineer in Kansas, um, who was dining with a friend at a restaurant and was murdered by someone who asked, should you be in this country, where are your papers, and you should go back to where you came from? <laughs> to just yesterday, um, we heard about a young Sikh American, a 25-year-old cabbie, whose turban was violently removed, and he was the victim of a hate crime in New York City. So unfortunately, um, this is the type of ways, and, and kind of coming back to this again, um, that we're seeing the impact of not just the post-9-11 environment, but also the impact of what is happening right now in terms of the current administration. So that's a gloomy picture, and I know it. Um, but I also think that is why it is so important for us to actually engage in different ways of resistance and movement building and community power. And that is happening and has been happening even in the post-9-11 environment to now. Um, so as I've been going around the country talking about the themes in my book, that's what has inspired me, and that's actually what is the bulk of the book, what uh, chronicling the resistance movements in communities. And I have been really um, moved by Dr. King's phrase about the fierce urgency of now, that I'm sure everyone remembers in this room, 
um, about how this is the moment to act, that there is no other future to wait for, that this is the moment that we must act if we want to create change in our communities. So being possessed of that fierce urgency um, is something that I implore everyone to be engaged in. And a mnemonic that I often use to kind of convey this is this one called BUILD, a very simple one, around how do we build bridges, especially among communities of color, among white, and white folks and communities of color. The importance of understanding our history. So as I said, knowing that this moment has its antecedents in post 9-11 America, which has its antecedents in, at least for South Asian communities, in um, the early uh, 20th century and anti-immigrant rhetoric. Making sure that we continue to inform ourselves, right? Even when the news is so traumatic that we don't want to read it. Um, leading with our own examples, uh, even when we are extremely beleaguered and tired. And of course, disrupting the status quo through resistance. Because it is not just something that we are doing for ourselves, it is for our future generations. Um, as I mentioned earlier, where we're heading, and it's I think important that we remember this even in the moment we're in, is that by 2060, by 2040, we will be a country where communities of color make up the majority population. And yet, when you look at every single indicator of success in this country, communities of color are lagging behind. And so how do we close that equity gap? And what does it mean to build multiracial solidarity are the two questions that I think we must be asking ourselves as racial justice advocates or people who are concerned with these issues. So lastly, um, I wanted to provide a couple of um, examples of some uh, ways in which people around the country are um, doing that piece called BUILD. And I have some pledge cards here, and I think I have some more in the back. Maybe my son over there can help me get these. Can you look for them in my bag? <laughs> um, so these are the ways in which people are actually responding to this pledge card that I was going to pass out to everyone. Um, it has some information about the book, but it also asks you to take a pledge on how you're going to engage in talking about race or making some or, or engaging in the fierce urgency of now. And um, there's a part at the top where you can make a pledge, and then there's a part at the bottom where you can ask if you need help. And if you put your mailing address up here um, and give it back to me, I will send it to you in a month or so with some ideas and suggestions and remind you um, about the pledge that you took. So not mandatory, but if you would like, I'm going to pass it around with a Sharpie. And Ahi, can you pass the rest around? Just, you can just pass it to the back row and they'll pass it around, okay? Thank you. Um, and so I wanted to just end with some more inspiring um, slides and information about movements for change, which at least are inspiring to me and I think are to many other people um, in this room and around the country, and specifically rooting that in Asian American and South Asian American communities. Um, so, you know, for, for Asian American communities in particular, we have been engaged in movements of change that are around anti-war, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism for quite some time. It's something that Asian American communities have recognized when it comes to hate violence with the murder of Vincent Chin that happened in Detroit. It's something that um, with the dot busters that actually um, ravaged a community in Jersey City. Uh, where they were basically trying to, um, they called themselves the dot busters because they were anti-anyone who wore, quote, a dot, which means mainly Indian people who had come to Jersey City. But groups like Hudson Against Racism were formed in the mid-1980s to actually respond to that sort of um, anti-immigrant sentiment. To more recent movements where young women, young Asian American women are claiming very strongly and clearly that we're not your model minority, right? That we won't be used as a wedge particularly between communities of color. And talking about issues around equal opportunity and affirmative action. These are the different ways in which Asian Americans and South Asian Americans are speaking out. Um, this is a picture of uh, someone I write about in the book, Bupin Ram, who is a, a queer immigrant who's undocumented, living in Los Angeles, who despite the fact that he was both queer and undocumented, found the courage to actually talk about his story. Um, a tremendous act of courage that he was able to take um, in terms of bringing his voice and story to the immigrant rights movement. And 
in the book, I, I, I say that when, when South Asians particularly engage in movements for social change, um, and when we try to address Islamophobia, that we cannot do it unless we recognize the role of anti-black racism. That we recognize what anti-black racism means when it comes to combating white supremacy, and how in many South Asian communities, we are still afflicted with anti-black racism ourselves. And so understanding the connection between anti-black racism, that that is the root and the reason why Islamophobia happens and xenophobia happens is a really important construct for South Asians to understand. So as we South Asians say Black Lives Matter, the importance that I talk about in the book of saying that isn't just about you know, showing up with signs, right? It isn't just saying South Asians for Black Lives. It's actually about interrogating how we engage in anti-Black racism ourselves within our own communities and to make it very clear that we're choosing resistance. So that kind of um, racial identification and racial solidarity has to happen first, particularly in South Asian and Asian American communities. Um, Asian Americans are also engaging in resistance in different ways. Um, uh, recently, 100 plus organizations vowed to not take a seat at the table with the Trump administration, um, that they would not be used to legitimize xenophobia. We saw in December of last year a movement led again by South Asian and Muslim immigrants in particular to shut down NSEERS, which is the special registration policy I had talked about earlier because it was the precursor to what we saw now with the Muslim ban. And, they, and we were able to shut it down. Um, we see people forming the intersections by saying no wall, no ban, no raids, showing that all of these issues are connected, right? That they aren't singular and that we need to come together to find a shared language around them. And of course, it is important that we root all of this in safety and love. This is a picture actually that I took in my son's elementary school a few days after um, the president was elected. Um, and uh, although I don't know if I should say that, after the presidential election, um, and, and when we went to school, we saw all these signs, right, in Amharic, in Spanish, and it was really important, even though I think that the six, seven-year-olds did not understand what they were about, um, the importance of saying this to be very clear in terms of um, signaling that people are loved and cared for, and that people are here to fight and here to stay in their own communities. So I just want to end um, with one of my, you know, someone who, uh, whom I didn't know personally, but who is an inspiration to me, Grace Lee Boggs, um, who uh, you know, is from, was from Detroit and had a connection with Baltimore, um, who was very clear when she said that you can't change any society, right, unless you take responsibility for it. So I hope that you'll be inspired by the stories of some of the people in my book who are doing that, um, who are putting their lives on the line, uh, especially when their lives and bodies are actually criminalized and um, they have so much to lose that you'll be inspired by them and that you will join movements for change or continue to support movements for resistance here in Baltimore and around the country. So I will pause there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming. Um, and I would love to see if we could have like a quick conversation or reflections as well. Thank you. Any questions? Anything is open, open game. I also love to know why you decided to come out on a Tuesday night to hear this conversation as well, so don't be shy. Yeah. To end this kind of hate violence? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a number of ways, right? I think I really do think the direct action and um, engaging in protest and dissent is extremely important. We've seen that it has worked, right? When we look back at civil rights history in this country and countries around the world, um, we know that it works now. I mean, I really do think that um, even though people talk about the Muslim ban being won in court, I actually think that the scene was set at the airports. That's where it began. The protests actually began, right? Um, and because they happened all around the nation and they caught the attention of the media and, and we know people who went to them, we may have attended those. Um, I actually think that that set the scene for um, the courts actually even 
to say no to the Muslim ban. So I do think that it's important to engage in that sort of direct action and protest. And then another thing I think is the importance of actually demanding that our states and our municipalities take a different approach than perhaps the federal government is. Um, so when we hear about the sanctuary city movement, um, when we hear about the safe spaces in schools, um, when we hear about uh, you know, local police departments saying they won't collaborate with immigration authorities. So all of those wins that are happening around the country are the result of people, you know, calling their legislators or showing up at City Hall and making their voices heard. So I think continuing to do that sort of work at the state and local level is also tremendously important. And others might, you know, here who engage in that sort of work might have ideas too. Richard? Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you for your work. Personally, I appreciate it. Um, I realize it's something I need to learn more about myself. Mm. Um, so I, I guess my question is this. What could I do, you know, just your teacher and talk college students, um, what can I do to become more, more effective in talking about these issues in, in a way that college students will understand, not just learn something, but it will motivate them to do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, for those, Richard teaches too, so I don't know, I think you probably are doing a great job um, with your college students, but I guess some ideas I would just add, and again, really opening it up to others who have expertise in the room and experience. Um, I think, you know, I think number one, I think it's really important that those of us who have the ability to teach about race or immigration or ethnic studies um, are grounding our uh, syllabi and our curricula in, um, in really talking about the hard issues, right? I think we do our students a disservice if we sort of sugarcoat everything. And so um, understanding that it's gonna make some people very uncomfortable and understanding that some people might be turned off by it, but um, making sure that the, the text we use, um, the pedagogy, the, the multimedia is really rooted in asking some of the hard questions and not shying away from talking about white supremacy or racism or Islamophobia. So I think that's really important because when I, as I mentioned, when I taught my college students, they, they just had such a sanitized understanding of all these issues. I mean, they just, you know, they didn't really get the systemic nature or the institutional nature of how this was even happening in their country. So I think um, so making sure that we kind of provide that is important. Um, the second piece is, I think, connecting students with local organizations and local efforts. Um, so I know that, you know, in some of the classes I taught, um, I would ask students to do sort of a um, community documentation, you know, so uh, have you, you know, asking them, have they wandered beyond College Park into Hyattsville, where there is like a large refugee community that is coming up, there's a black community, there's a black immigrant community, um, and doing community documentation, you know, doing sort of a survey of small business owners, right? Um, so being connected, not just in volunteering, but actually engaging with people and asking questions and then reporting back on that. Um, so those are just two ways, I think, about the pedagogy and being rooted in a, an orientation that we bring to students and that it's okay to do that. And then the second being um, the connection with the community um, in terms of assignments and the like. So I hope that helps. Other thoughts? Yeah. Um, one related question about students today in terms of um, local and downstate and teaching TikTok. Um, they, what, have you had any kind of information about exactly where the child wants to pick up? And in terms of by law enforcement? Yeah, in terms of by law enforcement. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good question. It happens in multiple ways. So, for example, um, if, if it's a national security case, which it often ends up, people end up being thrown, those charges are thrown at people uh, regardless, just because they happen to be either Muslim or come from countries that are Muslim majority. Um, oftentimes, that's a federal charge, and so they do... Are, they're either held in uh, prison or there are something called um, fusion centers that are existing all over the nation that actually are working very closely with state government. So this is like a collaboration between federal national security efforts, 
and state and local um, security efforts, um, and they're called joint fusion centers, they too engage in this sort of uh, enforcement. And then the third is immigration. And so you have kind of these three different levels in which people can be incarcerated, arrested, detained, and deported. Um, so, and, and many of our community members, three quarters of our communities, especially South Asians, are foreign born, so they're immigrants. Um, and so they find themselves not just stuck, if they're stuck on the national security route, they inevitably are also going to find an immigration charge against them as well. So it's in these three levels. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, there aren't, you know, there are definitely, you know, lawyers and legal services um, that are available. But I will say that there's a dearth of um, uh, sort of clinics, know your rights information, legal representation for many of our community members. A lot of it happens as like a class action lawsuit or it's a litig like impact litigation. Um, where you have a lot of people who are pulled together in a class, but a lot of individuals have a hard time accessing legal services. Um, and that is a big gap that continues to exist even now, 15 years after 9 11. Yeah. Okay. I'll repeat it if you want. Yeah, diversity in education. Yes. I'm involved with diversity programming over here in Peach. Okay. But so we had Kara come and speak last month and we had some other outside speakers. But sometimes it feels as if preaching to the choir. <laughs> How can you encourage people to think that it is important by having the meeting? Right. So the question, yeah, I mean, I think those are hard. The question is that um, oftentimes in doing, quote, diversity work on college campuses, um, there's a sense of preaching to the choir, so how do you get beyond that? Yeah, I think we all face that in every situation, right? That I mean, I, I think about that in my book talks. I'm like, I wonder if someone can, like really, really deeply conservative is going to come, but they hardly do. But um, no, I think especially on college campuses, you know, recently I was, um, I did a, a kind of a, a training and speech at um, George Washington University in DC, very different kind of culture um, with their diversity and inclusion department. And um, one of the things that I think helps, and I don't know where you are, where you teach, and others might be able to provide info, is um, I think number one, getting sort of the buy-in from like the top echelon of leadership, right? And so um, at, at least at that school, you know, the provost or whatever the highest person is called was really bought in and like, you know, came to every single event and spoke and talked and integrated some of that into their own work. Um, a second piece, I think, is really for us to think about moving beyond the words diversity and cultural competence. Um, I think that those are great starting points, but as we all know in this room, right, I mean, that's not enough. Um, so really looking at uh, concepts around equity and inclusion um, as sort of the next step beyond diversity, I think, is important. Will that get you to the rest of the folks who want to listen, I don't know, right? But I think that um, a lot of people, when they hear diversity or cultural competence trainings, kind of just shrug it off. It seems like soft skills. Um, but really, on, like moving beyond that, I think, can maybe get more stakeholders engaged. Um, a third, and the last thing I'll say, is like student, um, like the student advocacy. Um, so whether they're student organizations or student leaders who are really pushing for these sorts of conversations to happen and can um, create that sort of culture change on campus, um, I think that that also, at least in my experience with different college campuses, has helped a lot in taking these conversations a step forward. But I think this moment is one to, to use and exploit at some level, right? Like this is a political moment or climate, whatever, that we've not seen before. Um, and for many of us. And so uh, how can we make sure people feel safe? That's a question that everyone on campus should be uh, consider considering, not under the rubric of diversity, but really about like, uh, you know, making sure that people can go to school and feel safe and healthy and welcomed. So it's like a survival tactic. Yeah, Doris. Please. Um, so some of the terms of how do we 
expect that from our traditional Vietnamese homes, or even if we're in a circle, still the center of routine role, um, and from that respect, or the students are actually talking about the issues that are happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so one strategy that I've really used as students, but similar kinds of things, is to That's a great strategy. Thank you for sharing it. And I think it shows the, like, if you create that space, then the trust grows from week to week. Um, and students will bring these issues up on their own. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I have a group I'm concerned about. They're the mostly middle aged and older Hindus who are mm-hmm. huge supporters of Trump. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have Nikki Haley in the administration. <laughs> and we have this relationship between Trump and the prime minister of India. And one of the things that I saw on Twitter right after the Indians were shot in Kansas City Mm -hmm. is Indians were saying, they're so foolish. Don't they realize we're not Middle Eastern? Like Mm -hmm. they were thinking that they should have a protected status. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how do we address that community who are not, you know, wearing a Mm t-shirt protesting. Yeah, yeah, no. So the, you know, I think um, the one thing I will say is that I think the Hindus for Trump is still a pretty fringe group. I don't think that they're very large in numbers as far as when we've kind of gone out and um, tried to learn more about them. Um, But they're very loud and they also have a lot of money. Um, In fact, the man who um, founded that organization put millions of dollars into Trump's campaign. Um, so it, it is something that exists. And in fact, um, I read recently that uh, an offshoot of that group is setting up a DC office, right? And so it's clearly something that Hindus need to be concerned about, or progressive Hindus. So I'd say a couple of things in response. Um, one is, I think this is actually a call to action for progressive Hindus. This is a moment to actually um, look beyond a lot of the privileges that Hindus think that they have, you know, whether it's caste privilege, whether it's color privilege, whether it's economic privilege that Hindus have held in this country. Um, This is really a call to action for them to um, look at those issues more clearly. And who is doing that? Who is helping to do that? I think is actually their, um, the, the, uh, their kids, their sons and daughters, right? So there's one organization that I would just refer you and others to called Hindus for Justice that was actually created before the Trump Uh, Hindus for Trump, but it was created actually because of a need to address um, issues affecting Dalits, who are really kind of the caste, right, in India that um, have basically been treated as, you know, the undocumented or second-class citizens or uh, in this country. Um, And so that particular organization, Hindus for Justice, was really created to open the eyes of Hindus in this country to casteism and what that is doing to um, Dalits in particular. But they have pivoted to include a lot of new issues, and one of the issues that they're talking about is obviously issues of racism and xenophobia post the election. 
And I think that they're doing a lot of smart language uh, messaging. Um, they are also getting their work out in papers that people read, like India Abroad, and a lot of these like papers that have heavy circulation among like my parents' generation. Um, so they're and they're getting into temples, and so uh, with youth groups in temples, right? So I think that's the sort of work that we need to do. Um, Hindus who care about these issues have to like go into their temples and have a conversation. Um, about white supremacy and Islamophobia. And it's a really, like I've done some of those and it's really hard to have those conversations, but I think that um, you will find that several, pe many people respond appropriately and properly, right? And they're like, oh, I didn't think about it this way, or I totally agree. Um, so I think it's really important to use this moment to do some of that um, really on the ground work inside temples with our parents' generation, um, using ethnic media, and then pushing back on some of the negative rhetoric that groups like Hindus for Trump are putting out there on Twitter, like you said, or um, or kind of at their rallies and the like. So I'm actually, I actually feel, to be honest, very. Um, I'm, I'm actually inspired by that movement. I think it's actually working. So, I, and with Nikki Haley, I mean, she's always been a disaster, you know, from being. I mean, I'm sorry, the governor of South Carolina just like didn't care about multi generational black poverty, right? Um, so it's. I think that we ha we see a lot. She's not the only one. Seema Verma is an Indian American who's like head of um, CMS within HHS, I believe. Um, so there are people from our communities, Ben Carson. I mean, there are people of color, right, um, who are going to be set up as puppets um, for to, for that administration to say, "Well, I care about these communities." Um, but I think that it's important for us to continually push back. Another one. They're all South Asian, I don't know why, but it's the guy who heads up the uh, FCC. I can't remember his name. Maybe someone here will know. But the, FCC, the guy at the head of the FCC. Yeah, he's South Asian. He's very, he's very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, that neutrality is like out the window with him and the like. So I think, again, um, I do see South Asians pushing back, and I think that um, there are organizations that are taking that role of pushing back against these people and this sort of rhetoric and Hindus for Trump. So I'm actually, I actually think the call to action is being heeded and answered by South Asians. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Any other last questions? Yeah. Um, more of a comment, but I work for the Anti-Truth Foundation on the Project Prosecutor Council, and we've been putting a lot of emphasis on race mm -hmm. and the importance of bringing it up. If you're not talking about it, right. it's sidelines. Yeah, it's not an issue. Mm -hmm. um, and what we found within our networks is that people are very uncomfortable talking about it. Yeah, they're very uncomfortable. But if you provide them with a set of tools, if you provide them with mm -hmm. ways to frame it appropriately, mm -hmm. or a, a ways of thinking about the mm -hmm. issues, yeah. they start coming Yeah. But, and I know you mentioned you're working for CSS. Yeah. Yes. Your organization, yeah. up to the agenda, there are tons of there organizations are. Yeah. who do a lot of framing work, who do a lot of education, yeah. who like that out. talk about race. Right. Um, no, I agree. I mean, what, so at the back of uh, that paperback, um, there's something called How to Have Race Talks, um, uh, at the back of my book, which actually uh, provides sort of questions and prompts to actually have a race talk. And I named it a race talk rather than a conversation about Islamophobia or these immigrants on purpose, right, for what you said, to center race, but also understanding that we have to adopt a race plus approach, that it's race but the intersections of race and other factors. Um, and on, on my website, which is like, uh, you, can, you can read it there, it's like split, um, I actually have a number of other resources, um, including guides, um, as well as how do we stand in solidarity with these communities, especially in this moment, um, as well as um, a list of organizations um, from the Center for Social Inclusion to Race Forward and you know, many others at the national level, but there are obviously tremendous uh, work happening locally, especially in South Asian Arab Muslim and Sikh communities that you might be interested in that are also on my website. So I would refer you to that for um, the tools as well as more kind of calls to action as well. Yeah, and the intersections 
Yeah. Yeah, more to the fore. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of that, there's a, a website and, um, that actually my colleague and friend Laura coordinates um, called uh, no ban, no wall, no raids.wordpress.com um, that provides sort of day, like weekly information on the intersections of um, what is happening in terms of criminalization of Muslim communities as well as undocumented communities and has like a calendar of resistance and ideas um, that we put together for folks as well. So I'd also refer you to that. And I'm happy to talk about those resources one-on-one -on -one as well. So thank you so much for coming out. <laughs> I appreciate it. And if you have your postcards, um, I am happy to take them from you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.